Alright. Welcome to episode 56, TGE the podcast. How's it going, everybody? Hope you're doing well. It's another Sunday for us. Always nice to come back. We'll keep on doing it if you keep on listening. I'm here with Tyler. Tyler, how are you? I'm doing good, Sven. I'm happy to be here. Excited, you know, that word keeps going around about the podcast. There's, you know, the listens are constantly growing and we appreciate that. We appreciate the way people are sharing it and the feedback we're getting. And you got some specific feedback this week we're going to get into in a minute. But first, we would like to remind you, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to it on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It is subscribable. So thank you. So Sven, you have some comments from the video that you just dropped last Tuesday. Is that correct? I'm more so like comments I pull generally from the YouTube channel. I'm like, I want to make an effort okay. for on this podcast to pull some questions that require some longer answers and then we can discuss them here. So I pulled three of those. I also wanted to mention on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about baby driver, Edgar Wright's movie about a driver. So we're going to be looking at a scene from that. But here we go. First first question comes from Dwight. Dwight writes, I recently came across your channel. I'm inspired by the work you do. I've been out of college since 2012, and I still have not landed an editing job. I've done a lot of freelance work, shooting music videos, a few wedding videos, some promo work, and some documentary, and event videos. I shoot and edit all my own work. I've been doing a very basic editing for a PI firm, which is that private investigator, not sure, and now work as a PA for my local Fox News channel. I was once rejected for this position five years ago, and I decided to apply again. I'm familiar with both Premiere and Final Cut and have been struggling to land a good editing position. I feel like my lack of web design and graphic design could be what's holding me back. Also, I do not know much about After Effects. What would be your advice for someone who has no access to using the top programs such as Resolve or any top-notch camera and production equipment? I'm a little low on funds and now only have a Canon T4i and an old 2012 MacBook. Wow. So, Tyler, what do you think? What's your advice? Oh, that's who he was asking? Um, I think that... Well, one, it's important to differentiate. It doesn't sound like you haven't landed any editing jobs. It sounds like you have had several different ones, a different variety. You just haven't gotten the one that is in the industry that you want it to be. And I think that that's kind of the smart approach to just keep going at it and getting a PA job, even though it's in an unrelated field. If editing's what you really want to do, being a PA in that department at the Fox News Channel, I believe, or the local Fox news channel or something like that is great because heightening the skill of editing in the meantime with your side projects and stuff is going to be an asset that you have when they're trying to figure out what to do with you. And it's good that you reapplied because when you get rejected from something, it's important for people to know that doesn't mean that you will never ever be able to have that job. That just means in that moment, maybe compared to the other candidates, maybe based on the experience level you have at that time, you just are not the right fit for it. And that's fine. And you're constantly going to be growing and getting better. So it's good that it's good to get rejected. That's part of it. But it's even more important to kind of rise back up and take a second swing at it. So yeah, keep going on the path you are. This day and age, it's incredibly smart to know how to use After Effects and Photoshop and 
any motion stuff you can do is very helpful because it seems more and more from the job postings I hear about from students and stuff that that's what they want is someone who can, you know, just be an all-in-one shop and having a rudimentary understanding of it doesn't really hurt. And I think the best way to do it is just, I don't know, find something that you're excited to work on with it, like something for your web page or something like that, and just come up with a cool logo and, and go at it that way and just have stuff you want to experiment with in After Effects or shoot something on green screen or do whatever that you can get some attention with and, and heighten those skills. But that's, that's my take, the person you did not ask. <laughs> well, I'm going to add to this. <laughs> Dwight, I'm sensing you're using the I don't have money for equipment excuse. No access to using Uh-oh. top programs such as Resolve, which, by the way, is for free. It's a free download. But you might still have trouble using Resolve because you have an old Mac. 2012 might probably not really work all that great on there. Maybe. Um, Canon T4i, that's a pretty good camera. Never, ever make the excuse to say, oh, I can't create art because I don't have the equipment. You can shoot it on your phone, and this is not... You're not hearing this for the first time, I'm sure. It's so important that you create and ship, that you make something with whatever equipment you have available. If it's your phone, that's what it is. If you don't have Final Cut 10 and you can't use it uh, because you can't afford it, then cut it in iMovie. And that will run just fine on a MacBook 2012. Um, that's That's totally sufficient so you have all the tools you need to create something and the important part is not to just create but then to ship and ship means you put it in front of an audience you need to do that final step and put it up on youtube or somewhere where you can find an audience could be reddit or facebook whatever it is so that you go through that process of trying to find out if an audience is going to connect to your content. And that's the best way to learn. If something starts working and you can repeat it, then you just uh, learned some skill that you can apply. And the good thing is also when you put stuff out there, people will find you and they will ask you to do more of it for themselves. You'll find some opportunities that won't be available to you right now. But just because you're creating something, these opportunities will automatically come. And then you leverage up. That's my advice. Yeah, so just keep on the path you're going on and just dig in deeper. Yeah, good stuff. Thank you, Dwight. I have another one. This is not directly for editors. This is from Renan in regards to a video that I just released, which was with um, Lawrence Jordan ACE. He's going through the process of cutting a Netflix show. And Renan writes, awesome interview. I really would like a video like this showing the inputs and how is the working on set process of being a camera operator. If someone knows a channel that has a video about this, tell me below. I really uh, would like to know. Thank you so much. Tyler, is there anything about camera operating, about camera work, that any resources we can advise him of? Well, he wants he wants access to the this guy edits equivalent of operating, and so he, he I recommend the channel this guy operates. Yeah, that's which a good one <laughs> doesn't exist, but maybe someone will start it. But you've worked with people from DSLR guide and stuff like that, right? Or yeah, yeah I mean, definitely there are some channels like that. Um, I actually there is a website called theblackandblue.com, and this is by an AC, so not quite an operator, but the AC is very close to to an operator it's the guy who does mm-hmm. the clapper and who manages the camera settings and does the camera report and all that stuff uh, definitely would recommend checking mm-hmm. him out he has a blog 
Then there's a channel called Cook Optics on YouTube. That's a brilliant channel for camera people. Yes. And then if you if you really want to dig deep and want to do some tutorials on camera lighting setups, camera operating, um, there's Shane's Inner Circle. So that's a DP that shot, I think he shot one of the uh, Jurassic Park ones, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the website is called hurlbuttvisuals.com. Hurl, H-U-R-L, but B-U-T, visuals.com. And he has some yeah. a, a ton of free content on there just regarding to camera stuff. And the other thing I would add is that this camera operating is a union position. There is a union surrounding the industry. So it is something you do have to work your way into. So if you want to learn what happens on a set, just get yourself on a set in any, any way you can preferably something in that department and you'll figure out the steps and contacts you need to grow for you know just like editing for the years it will take to finally be entrusted with the operation of the camera because that is something the studios take very seriously along with a lot of other things cinematography editors all that like they want people that have been you might be the greatest operator you might be the greatest editor to ever grace the earth which i think is what most film students are at very least in in their minds but you need to put the time in to prove it to the people that have millions of dollars, in the case of television, $3 million an episode minimum, riding on your uh, majestic abilities. You just kind of have to prove yourself, even if you know you can do it. So keep that in mind. Nice. I have one more comment. And this one is coming from Shantanu. And he writes, or she, I'd love to be an editor, but I want my work to be recognized by people. I'm afraid that I won't get enough credit for the time that I would put into. Okay. Um, Wait, could you say it again? I didn't quite capture it. Well, it's not quite a question, but it's a statement. I think it's worth discussing. It's, I'd love to be an editor, but I want my work to be recognized by people. I'm afraid that I won't get enough credit for the time I put in. Hmm. So okay. he's, somebody is interested in editing, but is, what's holding him back is that he won't get enough credit for doing the work. Kind of the idea that the editor yes. is invisible. And the work, nobody, Which, the audience yeah. doesn't know when something is edited well. And before you answer, I would just say it's a little tough because we do not know how credit is being defined in this sense. You will get a credit in the credits of the movie yeah. and you will receive a paycheck and you will be paid for your work. You will gain experience. You will gain recognition from the people you work with. You will gain recommendations. But maybe credit means something greater yeah i think and it's to that i would remind you this is a collaborative art form and i mean it draws people that are very much in it for themselves i'm not saying that's what this comment is saying but if that's your attitude no matter what you do it, it becomes very stifling and very tough to move forward and feel satisfied with the nature of the work that you're doing yeah but it's a very human emotion in the sense that like i like to get credit for my work and sometimes i do feel like oh when the director comes on stage and and gets applause by the audience <laughs> right. and I sit in the audience and the director forgets to mention my name. I, I'm a little miffed about that. I feel a little sad that even though it doesn't really matter or it doesn't really mean anything because the audience doesn't quite really understand that filmmaking is a collaborative effort. Um, it's always about the actors and the director uh, in on the first level. But I can empathize with the sentiment. But I have to say it's definitely not a motivation or shouldn't be a motivation to do anything. Whether you uh, want to edit or not, I think should be based on whether you really, truly enjoy it and you're obsessed with the process itself. Um, that's the only way I find that I can be good at anything 
And once I can really be good at something, the, the recognition will come. People will appreciate it. Might not be the audience, might just be the director that hires you over and over again and really understands that you're saving their butt every time. And when it's, when it's a good relationship, when this is a good guy or a good girl that you're working with and they can make you feel appreciated, that might mean even more than knowing that the audience knows that you cut the the thing in the obvious yes you, you're totally right and th that happens non-stop all the time what you're saying Sven yeah. but to answer this question I mean I, I kind of think there would have to be something you would offer like a job <laughs> where you do get credit for your work and I'm just trying to think of what that what that might I be I think a DP gets a lot of credit like the audience mm -hmm. tends to really love cinematography and they point it out and they they drool over it so that's that's sure. one where I think you you your art seems to be way more apparent your contribution. But it's a very different thing than editing. True. And I mean same because you said for directing and and more than anything acting, yeah. but it's just kind of like you need to really like what I guess my thing with the comment is is the need for credit what's driving it? Cause it sounds like you really like editing but you're afraid that you won't get credit. So if the need for credit and attention for accomplishments that aren't yours is what's driving it, then just be a politician or something <laughs> and you'll, you'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the need for credit should probably never be the primary uh, reason to do anything. But maybe being a politician is... That's perfect. That's <laughs> a perfect trade. Okay, and, and speaking of credit, Edgar Wright directed... <laughs> Speaking of credit, who edited Baby Driver, Sven? Oh, it's two editors, Jonathan Ma Amos and Paul Macklis. I hope I pronounced that correctly. But they're both uh, credited as the editors. And funny enough, Evan Schiff did the, is credited as animatic editor. And Evan Schiff is the one that did uh, the John Wick 3, the latest one. He's nice. the full editor. So. That was kind of a nice, interesting, like, oh, I guess he worked with Edgar Wright in pre-production here in L.A., figuring out some of the the, the shots before they actually did them, which uh, they did a bunch of. I mean, pre-production in this movie was just a big, big part of the, the editing. They basically cut a previous of a lot of the action scenes beforehand. So previs being three d sort of three-dimensional storyboards... Uh some form of animatics, yeah. I know. I just wanted to be clear for people listening. So yeah, so that kind of stuff when you're doing stuff that's that's intense and action heavy and dangerous and involves like large several ton objects flying towards each other at hundreds of miles per hour, it's wise to kind of figure that out before you put cameras down and start filming it. And the pre visualization process can be very helpful with that. For sure. I mean, Edgar Wright really. Um, I mean, they they. T take it to the absolute extreme in this one this is basically near real-time editing so what happened is that they were shooting a scene and they knew exactly when to cut before they were shooting the scene so they actually were timing the shots and the performances based on a cut and why was that because they needed to make it work with a pre-selected music track so they figured out the entire soundtrack of the film then they figured out all the sequences and what the cuts would be, what the shot composition would be. And then they would actually do the shots. They would put them in the timeline, replace those shots from the previous. And then Edgar Wright would look over to the editor and say, 
did we get a good take? Does this work? He would give him thumbs up and then they could move on and do the next thing. And I will speculate that there being three editors sounds like it largely reaffirms the point that the commenter was making, which is, man, you don't feel like you're going to get credit. But And this could be a case where the editors are getting replaced and swapped out, which happens on big films. But Edgar Wright, I think, is a little more deliberate, a little more passionate than that. And it sounds to me like there is an editor who's specifically working on these elaborate action scenes that are going on in like this movie never would have been finished if one person edited all of that stuff or it would have been a significantly longer thing like someone's working on action scenes someone's working on something else would be my my prediction but i do not know yeah i know that um i th- it feels to me like paul Maclis was the primary editor i'm not quite sure what their working relationship was but um, he's the guy that also cut Scott Pilgrim and The World's End. So he's been working with Edgar Wright for many, many years. Yeah, I, I read that Evan basically just helped with the pre-visualization in Los Angeles. There's a whole team of um, support, additional assistance, and so on and so forth, because the, the workflow is just really, really complicated. Okay, Sarah, I thought you'd said there were three editors, so my mis- my mistake. All right, so should we look at the fine work here? I think the other thing that's important about this scene is that it's an introductory scene. It's the first scene from the movie. Now, it is also a scene that was released sort of ahead of the release of the film, and can we confirm this is identical to what was in the movie? Oh, that's a good point. It looks to me like it's, the, it's identical. The ending is slightly different, I think. Like the credits at the end, that doesn't seem right. Right, not at all. But I vaguely, that's the teaser part of it, but I vaguely remember there being maybe some dialogue and stuff in, in the actual film. But I could, I could be wrong. I see. Like John Hamm saying stuff and things like that. But I think looking at it in terms of like an introductory scene will be really cool too because there's nothing spoken in this whole six-minute scene and we pick up a lot about the characters, who they are and stuff like that through this, through this what's basically an action scene, but like this entire movie... There's just so much more content to what's happening than merely the action. Cool, yeah. What are we doing, Sven? What we usually do on this podcast, and we're doing it today, is we're looking at a scene. We want to look at some specifics and just see why is the storytelling this way. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we know. We just want to ask the questions, and we want to maybe speculate on the answers. And by doing this, we're kind of just honing our craft as editors, because part of being a good editor is to be able to watch and feel and then take note of what we feel. And that's what the exercise is here on this podcast. It's actually, I think it's good that it's something where you kind of have the opportunity to go back and listen as we talk through the scene and look at the actual scene at the same time and maybe pause play with us but you don't have to we'll uh, talk you through it and then at the end we go back and we'll discuss some concepts that we notice all right so let's go for it because we're this is uh, this is another one where it's going to go really fast lots of music lots of cuts so we're going to try and do our best here we go you ready all right here we go in three two one click Alright, it's black. Music comes up. And then we fade up on two cars crossing street. There's a white shot. It's covered up by a red car tire insert. We're cutting to an iPod inside the car. Music starts up. This is our hero. And then we're cutting to all the other guys in the car. They all get a medium closer. With the music beat. With the music beat. And then... On the motion, we cut to them exiting the car, 
They open the trunk, they pull something out of there. Baby, that's the main character, he stays in the car. They walk across the street towards a bank. They cover up their faces. They enter the bank. We're inside the car as he's looking over. Music stops. And then we see Baby dancing to the music or like singing, miming. He holds a water bottle as a microphone. The car is kind of, the camera is moving around, kind of dolly shots inside and outside. And now he's like miming that he's turning the wheel. He's really like getting into the music. He's turned on the wipers. We're we're cutting on the turn. Go ahead. We're just learning a lot about the character also through this bit. Yeah. So he's... uh, What do you call that? The guy that's in the car that drives the escape? The getaway driver. The getaway driver. He's air violining. There's a cop car passing by. We don't know for sure that he's not doing something awful and dangerous it makes sense that he is and then we see a cop car zip by and then we get quick glimpses of what's going on in the bank and his reactions to that which are very important that he's not okay with this which is kind of creating conflict between the characters and stuff yeah he's seeing uh, his partners pointing pointing guns sorry and And at first it looks like it's it's affecting him like he's like it looks like they're going to shoot some people and it's going to affect him but the music sort of takes him out of the moment he's back in sort of getaway moment okay they run out of the bank he revs up the car he releases the handbrake one of and the I love this moment for the obvious because it also establishes a conflict between the characters like one of them thinks he's going to do one thing pointing forward John Barenthal and then he does the complete opposite to start this chase yeah it's a great moment so now we have your basic um, driving shots. They're followed by a cop car. The uh, street light goes to red. He um, slides through it, makes an elegant move, and doesn't hit any of the cars. But the cop cars, they obviously crash into the oncoming traffic. But there are more cop cars, and he's focused. Like he's, by the way, he has like these little head headphones in his ears, so he's completely in his own uh-huh. zone little insert there mm-hmm. from the back mirror where we see more cop cars. A non-attentive viewer would think the cops are chasing him because he has headphones in. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so this is a... He does a, this little puddle move which we should talk about where he, do, he, he does an e-brake kind of slide into a puddle to kind of... Yeah, it's like 2180, very turn. famous, much discussed shot. Okay, they're on a freeway. Cop is rolling out a chain he's able to avoid it but the other cops behind him drive right through it i like how a new beat is introduced through like a wipe or like a sliding shot lots of cop cars in the back mirror i guess we're on surface road again and And i would just say it's really good to look at the actors reactions throughout this because they're very specific the moments they're choosing and you kind of instinctively pick up a lot about the way John Barenthal feels about what's going down and how John Hamm feels one's kind of like impressed and like amazed and the other's like has a level of, of irritation with baby 
you could you could you could decipher. And then also that he's having to improvise here. Yeah. Um, We're well, back on the freeway. The there are two other red cars. His car is red, and so he drives among them. And then when there's a overhang, he switches position with them. So the helicopter cop doesn't know which car is his. One drives off in another direction, and that's him. And this is how he was John able to Hamm trick taps him on the shoulder, reassuring. Goes through an alley. Sees another cop car that didn't seem to have noticed him. And now he's in a parking garage. Lots of shots where, like, in the foreground, there's something moving by, and that is uh, initiating the cut as well, throwing the edit. So they change cars, mm -hmm. they get into a black or dark car, and slowly, casually drive out of the parking lot. And that's the end of the scene. Yes, without him driving. Well, and then we fast. dissolve out, which I think is a, an ode to uh, Bullet. I think that that's a tribute to that. And then we have a teaser, which needs no discussion. All right. So, so this scene, and this, is, this, this scene is very symbolic of the entire movie, I think. Like each scene in this, each action scene um, is motivated by the music. And that is motivated by the character. So this main character is using music to kind of shield himself from the stress, the intensity of the moment, and is able to deal with it. So it kind of makes sense to use music to uh, drive the filmmaking of it, which is the cinematography, the camera moves, the composition, and then also the editing. And in that sense, I think this is a really interesting scene to take a look at. Yeah, music's a hugely instrumental part of the character's life and journey and the way that he kind of, like you're saying, is able to disengage from what's going on and and use music as kind of an escape tool is very powerful. And then just to have all these, it, it also gives the filmmaker a reason to make these incredibly impactful chase sequences that are so musically based to make music like something that's important to the character just gives it a lot of freedom for Edgar Wright to kind of have a lot of fun with this genre in a very specific way. Yeah. It pays tribute to a lot of different films and stuff like that. So before we get into it, I have a theory, and you can tell me whether you think I'm right or wrong. But um, the main character, Baby, obviously had a very traumatic experience in his past, and that's why music is sort of his escape. It also seems to me that he's kind of a little bit on the spectrum and that he needs patterns, he needs structure to be able to deal with trauma or anxiety or stressful situations. And once you sort of establish those as the rules of this character in the movie, it's really interesting to explore those. So the way that this heist starts and the way that he starts up the music, that's not coincidence. Like he, he's trying to have as much control as possible for a situation that co can go any way possibly. And he's trying to find some rules and some structure in it. And to then use that for the editing, I think, is really cool. That's my setup. Mm -hmm. um, the first shot that I want to talk about is at 42 seconds. And it basically goes from... The camera is in front of the car. We're looking at the main character, center frame, through the windshield. In the background, we see his three partners, 
as they're like closing the trunk and they, they're carrying some suitcases and they're walking towards the bank. The cut happens as we are, um, I don't know what her name is, but she is in the center of the three people walking towards the bank. And as her bag is center frame, we cut to somebody that's passing by on the street, sort of like whooshing the camera, wide shot, in the same position, same eye tracing, center frame. And then we cut to them in the wide shot of them crossing the street. I don't think that's by coincidence that, that they thought, okay, this is a good cut point. I think this is definitely storyboarded or designed so that we really have a very, like we're throwing the edit here. And we'll see that throughout, yeah. that motion really throws the cut point. Mm -hmm. Or you could digitally add that person in also. True. So if we, for example, go issue. to 56 now. The music stops at 55. And then at 56, we are sort of in a profile shot of Baby, and he's completely still. And when the music starts, he starts sort of to dance. And that's what throws the edit. From 56 to mm -hmm. 57, the camera is across from the other side of the car, moving, dolly shot. And then it's sort of dolling towards the open window. We can see him holding the water bottle. So that would be another example of throwing an edit. Mm -hmm. Then I would like to move on to 112. And it's maybe a little earlier. It's a moment when he kind of mimes that he's using the steering wheel. He's like, he's pretend steering mm -hmm. on the wheel to the music. And it's kind of a new idea. It's a new move in his whole dance routine or choreography. And <laughs> as this new action starts is where the cut point is. So a new idea, a new thought is sort of empathized by the cut point. So if we go to 112, that's when the action starts. We're in the same shot. It's, again, it's a dolly shot. And then at 116, 117, a new idea starts where he's like whipping his head back and he's, he's making the next move in his dance. Mm -hmm. And then again at 119, he comes to a complete stop and that's where we have the new cut. And then at 120, mm -hmm. he moves his hand to initiate the wiper. And as the action starts, we're throwing the edit to do the next cut. So throughout this entire scene, I feel like a lot of action, a lot of starting motion is what motivates the cut. And do you think that this was just a ton of coverage or do you think this was all methodically mapped out with the dance routine? Normally I would say that's a ton of coverage and they're finding it as this is being built. But knowing a little bit of the backstory and I read an interview with mm -hmm. the editor um, that he actually... Um, that they actually pre-plant this and that these edits are very specific. I'm, I mean, I'm sure once they put it all together, a lot of this might have changed, but this is all by design right, but, at this point. But also it's, it's in, at its heart, it, it, is a, it is a musical sequence, you yep. know, with like the future star of the West Side Story remake. So it makes sense that that stuff is incredibly choreographed in terms of the bits of performance you're doing 
right? Like I'm sure you do the whole thing from a certain angle to get some sort of master, but you're also breaking it up pretty significantly to choreograph specifically planned, like the camera's choreographed in addition to the dancing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the music is basically what makes this so tricky because the music, they don't want to do music edits. They want to mold the film to the score. So whenever there's some intense moment in the music, they want to find a way how to tell the story that that matches up, which is quite an interesting mm. exercise, I think, because usually you do it the other way around. Yeah. Um, and it worked. Yeah, yeah. 2.35 is where I'm, I have my next little note. And it's you already talked about this sort of hand movement of his uh, partner, the shotgun guy, um, the guy that sits shotgun, I should say. And... He gets into the car and he points forward as if he's signaling to the baby, go ahead, you can go, you can leave, take off. And instead of going forward, yes. the car moves backwards. So he's already like two steps ahead of even his partners in the sense of well, how he's, he's also it's Yeah, but it's also establishing that he's changing the plan because new information has presented itself in that musical sequence, which is a police car is driven by for an unrelated reason going the direction that he was supposed to be going very good so that is very plausible uh, yet i think it's very surprising at the same time that he's going backwards and it's it's nice to yeah to play with expectations and the expectation is for the audience at this point he's going to go forward but he doesn't unless they understand the, right. the stick shift which sort of prior indicated which direction he was going to go <laughs> Yeah, I don't think the audience is expecting him to go backwards at all. And yeah. the pointing, again, also establishes conflict. There's one thing I want to point out real quick that I can't... The one thing that jumps out to me in this is the shot at 325. 325? There's this thing where he whips around and gets in that puddle oh, that I yeah. want to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the amazing thing that does, I have a very clear image in my mind from seeing it in theaters, probably watching the scene in advance of that, etc., of what happens there, how this pays off. But they entirely cheat it with the editing. So it's an amazing thing of letting the audience fill in with their minds how he's pulling this like near impossible move off. Like he goes in the puddle and you think it's to whip back around, but you never see that. You only see the end of the move. So it, it ends at um, 3.28. We cut away to insert a John Hamm reacting and then we come out and the move's already complete. And so it's like the biggest cheat of this totally impossible car move ever that I'm sure they executed. So it's just, it, it makes me, it just makes me wonder, wait, could they not do it? Did it like, you know, why does that work so well not having it? And that's like a big sacrifice to make in the editing to cut around the action of something to kind of sell it better. Yeah, and maybe they, it was more elaborate and they decided to just cheat it and, and get out of it Maybe cut center. it down. I mean, the first thing is, yeah, this is a practical stunt. So I, I have to believe that most of this is all real. I mean, it's real, but it's not going to ever happen. Yeah. So he's he's doing <laughs> basically two 180s in here. 326, right. he's doing the first one. And it's interesting, the cut point you pointed out at 329. The way that the car is moving, like we're inside the car with the camera and we're looking at John Hamm in in sort of a dirty over-the-shoulder kind of thing, situation. The, how the background is moving is going against what I would have thought the motion would be at this point. It's very confusing. Right. It almost yeah. feels like it's going the wrong way, which I think right. is, is having the right effect, which is like, we're like, oh, shit, is this going to work out or not? Is he going to crash into a wall or into another car? 
but it does feel right. like a cheat. And then we have the performance also of his, which is what people are always going to lock in on, which is like, you know, that like excited thrill, you know, and admiration. Yeah. Which is very different than what's going on with John Durenthal. Yeah, so I Anyhow, had this, so then 350. Oh. For, yeah, I hit the shot at 352. And it's a small little detail, but I think it's so important to have these little shots in there that make a big difference for the motion. So 347, 348. That's row of spikes or something. Row of spikes. So Baby is trying to avoid this. He's sliding around it and sliding some more. And then at 352, we are in a medium close-up outside pointing the camera towards Baby. He's looking over. The car is basically spinning right now. And then he's he's moving on to the next thing. So and as he's looking towards the next road where he's going, like a like a swerve to into another road, the camera sort of pans away from him. And then we're making the cut. That little pan with the camera just away. It could be either digitally or it was actually in camera. Really motivates this cut and makes us feel the mass of the car. These are mm-hmm. great little shots you can use to to create inertia or just weight. Right, and it's also letting us check in kind of with the character's reaction to this amazing thing, which is cool. I did that, now time for the next thing. (laughs) And I'm a a little bit ahead of you, FYI. So 355, there's like a sight, like the car is entering into a new shot, like we're starting a new beat. This is basically a moving wide shot where we see downtown Atlanta. And the car is coming into frame from camera left and then is taking over the shot. And I notice a lot of moments like this where they introduce a new beat by the object moving from the side into the shot and then taking over the shot. And it really helps to structure this chase where we're like, okay, so we had this moment with the spikes, now we're moving on to a next beat. So it's good to have these chapter marks in a scene to divide up the the story turns. Mm-hmm. Okay, at four or five, I have another one of these little details that I just love, and it's an insert. The car, the camera is mounted to the like the the bottom of the car, pointing backwards. On the camera right, we see the wheel of Baby's car, and then the rest of the frame we see in the background a bunch of cop cars following him. And what I just love about this moment is we see the wheel spinning and then he completely steps onto the brake so it stops spinning, it's sliding and it creates a bunch of smoke and then the car starts to spin. All this in this shot completely explains what's going on. And there's another slide right afterwards to, to get into the next beat. Yeah. And the escalation, too, of there just being more and more cop cars and more and more problems is something that's being held on to throughout. Yeah. So, yeah, that's basically the things that I notice, these little details that really help um, create motion, throwing the edit, sideswiping, and, and playing with mass and structuring the scene, which is really, really important, especially for action. I love when action is structured, and it's not just chaotic. It should feel chaotic in a way, intense, but it it also, it's nice when it has a clear progression of story, like there's an outcome. Yeah. 
There's a there's an obstacle and there's an outcome. Sorry. Yeah, and the more I look at it, every single shot of John Barenthal, he's to some degree not on board and not okay with what's happening. Yeah. Whereas, you know, and that's just like a great small detail to have because it does create that kind of you know conflict in the scene, which is great. And John Hamm's totally on board in a way. He's also scared. He he has you know various layers he brings to stuff, but he's ultimately like, this is fucking cool. <laughs> So yeah, awesome. I mean, this is really so, cool filmmaking. I had a bit of a st- concern, or like when I saw the film, it felt like okay, it's just action, it's just a gimmick, it's just cool. I was missing a little of that. Mm-hmm. Like I really wanted to find out more about the characters and so on, but maybe that's just me. Yeah, but I think it delivered on that. I think it's a, a total character portrayal with the one, and also again, that's what he, you know, the goal was to make an action film and with something that is so aesthetically driven like John Wick or something like that, yeah. which we've also looked at, how can you add some sort of style and substance to it? And there's so many ways that that's done in this, but that's yeah, true. That's a, a good comparison, John Wick bold. to this, I think. So very cool. If you do check out Baby Driver, let us know, or if you have checked out Baby Driver, more likely let us know your thoughts on it. Where can they respond with the thoughts on the podcast, Sven? Oh, send us a tweet at this guy edits. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. There you go. It's that simple. It's a long scene. A lot of great, cool stuff going on. I'm sure there's and there's a lot of information out about it. So if we miss something, let us know. Share it. And we will maybe respond to you on podcast or Sven will hit you back on Twitter. And if you like what you're hearing, let a friend know about the podcast. If you didn't like it, also let a friend know about the podcast. And we will look forward to seeing you next week when we are... Do we know what we're doing next week? I thought... I, I have an happen. idea to propose. Either next week okay, or after. Cool. And in the meantime, please let us know what clips or scenes you would like us to look at from what films, because that's the most fun and exciting for us when it is suggested. Thank you to Curter for the music, and as Sven always says... Happy editing. I want to do Apocalypse at some point. Apocalypse Now. Yeah.